Welcome back to the program. Today, as we look around the world, it sometimes seems to be spinning out of control. It feels like a time, to quote Yeats, when the falcon cannot hear the falconer, when the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passion and intensity. Does the fault lie in the vagaries of human nature or in our leaders and institutions? The answer is that both are intimately linked in ways that, when fully understood, explain the essence of how the world works. This is the journey that Francis Fukuyama takes us on in his two-volume masterwork on political order. He's just published the second volume, Political Order and Political Decay. Francis Fukuyama is the Olivier Nomalini Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. He previously taught at the Nietzsche School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins. He was a researcher at RAND and served as deputy director for the State Department's policy planning staff. He's the author of the previous works, The Origins of Political Order and the End of History and the Last Man. It is my pleasure to welcome Frank Fukuyama back to this program to talk about political order and political decay from the Industrial Revolution to the Globalization of Democracy. Francis Fukuyama, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. In many ways, as we look at this history, as, as you lay it out in this remarkable period, in many ways, the history is the history of political institutions. Talk a little bit about that idea. Well, I think uh, institutions are really critical for order because an institution is a rule, basically, that survives uh, an individual leader or individual political party so the Constitution in the United States constitutes an institutional framework in which our democracy operates. And I think if you look at a place like Libya or Syria right now, uh, you know what they lack is a basic set of institutional rules that allow them to negotiate differences without getting out their AKs and, and shooting each other. Uh, and that's why I think all political order really rests on, on developing this very ever more complex series of rules over over time. And we tend to often look down on these institutions in the realm, as, as you talk about, of public administration as somehow something negative, but in fact it's the very essence of how states create themselves. Well, I think that's right. I think that the problem living in a place like the United States where we've got well-established institutions is that you tend to take them for granted. And so you get very angry when your county or city doesn't take care of potholes in front of your street, uh, but then you kind of don't give them any credit when they actually do you know, that basic uh, job of maintaining infrastructure because we all kind of assume that it's going to be there. I think if you go to a developing country, you realize that you absolutely cannot take this kind of stuff for granted because most states, most governments are really incapable of providing for infrastructure or public, you know, public health is another great example. It's right before us. I mean, why is it that Ebola has um, become such an awful epidemic in these poor West African countries? It's because they don't have a public health infrastructure to deal with this terrible disease. Talk about the role of the rule of law and democratic accountability within the context of thinking about these institutions. Well, I think that there's really three things that you need to have a modern political order. So you need a state, which is really about power and the ability to use power to enforce laws and provide basic services. But on the other side of the ledger, you've got the law, which, if it's really going to be rule of law, should constrain 
the most powerful people in the society, meaning the president, the prime minister, the king, whatever. Uh, and then you've got democratic accountability, which are free and fair elections that allow uh, the people to approve their leaders or, or hold them accountable for things that they've done. And so you really need a balance. On the one hand, you need an institution, the state, that's powerful enough to actually do things that the community wants it to do, but that power really has to be constrained by law uh, and by democracy, basically. Uh, and I think that you can end up with two bad situations. If you have just a state without law and accountability, you have a dictatorship or a tyranny. But if you have just the accountability and the law without a state, you get, you know, you get chaos in a certain sense. And so I think what's important is to have all three of them in a kind of balance. And it is the playing out of that balance that really seems to determine the success or failure of states. I mean, as you talk about in following Samuel Huntington, this idea that all good things don't necessarily go together. Well, that's uh, that's true. So, for example, uh, in a country like Greece, where you've had this euro crisis originating in the last few years, one of the problems was, um, people don't know this, uh, but Greece was actually one of the first countries in Europe to democratize. This happened back in the 1860s. Uh, and as a result, you know, the Greek political parties began to compete with each other basically by giving out jobs in the public sector. And so by the time you got to the present, uh, to the 2000s, uh, you've had democracy in Greece since 1974, but the democracy, in a sense, had bloated the public sector because each political party saw fit to load up the civil service with as many of its uh, you know, followers as, as possible. And so that's a case where all good things didn't go together, where the quality of public administration was really injured and the ability to maintain fiscal, you know, some kind of fiscal discipline was, was undermined by the fact that you had this democratic uh, uh, contest going on. And historically, this undermining of political and public administration has really been infected with this sense of nepotism and patronage over time. And you talk about that as a function of, of human nature in some respects. Well, that's right. I think that human beings are social animals by nature. Um, but our sociability takes a certain specific form. We really prefer uh, relatives and we prefer friends with whom we've uh, exchanged favors. And I think this is kind of the default way that human beings relate to each other. If you have a political order that's modern that says you can't just hire your cousin because he's a you know a relative of yours, you have to hire somebody that is you know has the right qualifications. That in a sense violates uh, a kind of basic instinct that we have, and modern orders are therefore fragile and they tend to break down because I think people really would like to favor friends and and and, and family wherever they could. Uh, and when the incentives start weakening, then you get corruption. You get, uh, you know, people trying to use their uh, elite status to to stick their friends and families into high places. And I think that's really one of the big sources in the long run of political decay. What we often hear is that when we've gone the other direction and really focused in on the best and the brightest, that hasn't always worked out well either. Well, that's right. So I think that there's always this balance that uh, in a democracy you want popular participation, uh, you want popular control of the government, uh, but you also need expertise and 
you know, people with knowledge and so forth, but the people with the expertise and the knowledge, A, sometimes get it really wrong. Uh, you know, I mean, you've seen an example of this with the CDC in the last couple of weeks where they just didn't get the right protocols uh, uh, in place. Uh, and then sometimes they're, you know, they're not loyal or they're not, uh, they're corrupt and, and, and things of that sort. And so that's why I think, you know, balance is really important that, you want democratic control. You want the people to rule, but you also want to take advantage of, um, uh, you know, real expertise in the government. And you know, being on one side or the other isn't isn't right. You got to be somewhere in the middle. I remember back in the '60s, William F. Buckley, in attacking the Kennedy administration, once said that he'd rather be governed by the first hundred people in the Boston phone book than the faculty of Harvard. I mean, that really goes to the heart of of this issue. Well, I think there's been this, uh, you know, anti-elitist strand in in American politics, which is very understandable because this is fundamentally a democracy where the people uh, are supposed to rule. But one thing that, you know, was a consequence of the people ruling in the 19th century was what historically was called the spoil system or the patronage system, Mm -hmm. where basically every single uh, position in the U.S. government, from the federal government all the way down to Tammany Hall and all these local municipalities uh, were staffed by political appointees that were put there by some politician who was paying back a political debt. And it really took a big struggle in the late 19th century to turn this into a system that was more expertise-based. And so, you know, Buckley actually had his wish (laughs) back in the, you know, back in the middle of the 19th century where the first hundred people in the phone book actually were running the country, and it led to, you know, fair amount of corruption and, and, and low-quality government. Where does the role of leadership and vision fit into this bureaucratic and institutional framework? How do those two coexist together? Well, I think that the way things happen in a democracy, to get real political reform, you need several things coming together. So you need grassroots, um, you know, mobilization, uh, but then you need uh, leadership for that. Uh, I think this is something that happened in the 19th century. There was a big civil service reform movement, for example. And then you had people like Theodore Roosevelt, who uh, actually, you know, put um, uh, a, a concept or an idea behind this this popular anger and and you know, really changed the country in, in quite a number of ways. Uh, one of the things that I think is odd about the American politics right now is that you don't either, either have really the right leaders or the right followers, so that, for example, after the uh, financial crisis in 2008, you'd think that there'd be a lot of popular mobilization to change things, and that really hasn't somehow materialized, and that's both a function of, you know, the the, the absence of the the populist anger, but also strange lack of, I think, leadership in terms of formulating different ways that we could organize our institutions or, you know, a real way of, of, of changing the country. Talk a little bit about the economic overlay to all of this, the role that economics plays, and what we have seen recently in terms of non-democratic states, China perhaps being the penultimate example, that have the bureaucracy in place, do not have the democratic accountability or even a full rule of law, and yet are economically successful? Uh, you know, China, by some measures, is already um, rivals the United States in terms of the size of its um, 
uh, its total economy, uh, and it's an authoritarian country. I mean, there's no question. It's run by a communist party. There's no elections. There's a very, very weak rule of law. So it's a kind of unconstrained dictatorship, and yet they've been able to oversee this miracle of you know 30 years of uh, you know for most of that time double-digit uh, growth. And I think it's a serious. Uh, you know, it's the one really serious challenge that's out there to um, the Western model of liberal democracy. Uh, the real question, I think, for all of us is whether this Chinese model is sustainable. And I think for a whole variety of reasons, it's um, uh, it's not. One of the things you mentioned, economics, is, is one of the things that may kill them because in the end, it's going to be extremely hard for them to maintain this really high growth rate as they try to be a high-income country. And with that, I think there's going to be a lot of disappointed middle-class expectations in a growing Chinese middle class that may not be so happy to live under this kind of authoritarian rule where basically the government treats them uh, as children. And so I think that's going to be one of the big issues for the next you know, 10 or 15 years in that country is whether uh, the middle class is going to break through in some sense and, and demand a greater uh, share of political power. And to a certain extent, it's more complex when we look at what's going on in China, the changing nature of that, and the decay that you write about that's beginning to take place in the U.S., and those are the two tentpoles of, of world order in many respects. Well, I think that's right. I think the United States uh, at the end of the Cold War was really the dominant power in terms, and, and it's not just that it was militarily dominant, but I think the American political and economic model had so much prestige that, for example, all of these former communist countries in Eastern Europe, like the Czech Republic or Poland, really wanted to you know, develop the same kinds of institutions that, that uh, existed in the U.S. But now, after the financial crisis in the United States and, and in Europe, I think that that liberal democratic model just has a, a lot less prestige, and you get people like Putin and Xi Jinping in China uh, getting up and saying, "Look at us! You know, we're authoritarian countries. Uh, uh, we, you know, can make decisions rapidly. We can move ahead economically." Uh, and meanwhile, the democracies are mired in high unemployment and stagnation and so forth. Now, I don't believe for a minute that this is a <laughs> a right. Uh, assessment because I think you know they may be doing well right now but they're not sustainable models but I do think that in terms of the projection of soft power that makes a lot of difference and countries around the world are watching and they're saying oh well maybe they're you know maybe they're right about that where do education levels fit into these respective equations well I think that you know one of the biggest forces for change in politics is is really the growth of the middle class. So if you look at you know recent events beginning with the Arab Spring but the protests that broke out in Brazil and in Turkey last year they all had something in common which was that they were all led by middle class young people who were much better educated than uh, their parents generation. You know a lot of them were university graduates they could use technology they're on Twitter and Facebook and so forth and I think that um, I mean this is a point that my mentor Samuel Huntington made very strongly you know forty years ago, which is that educated middle class people behave differently they're really much more demanding 
uh, of politics, and if they're disappointed in their expectations, then that's really a pretty volatile situation, and that's why all of these countries, I think, have come under a lot of pressure um, of, you know, for, for, for better performance. And yet on the other side of that equation, there's the U.S., which you write extensively about in, in political order and political decay, which seems to be on the downward trend of all of this. Well, that's, that's correct, but first of all, I'd have to say I don't think America is in decline overall because I think the American private sector has always been the much more vigorous part of American society, and that's doing pretty well you know, in terms of energy and mm-hmm. information technology, healthcare. There's a lot of innovation going on, but I think the government uh, is a different story because the government is you know, is really kind of frozen up right now in what I call a vetocracy, meaning it's a it's a rule by veto. We've got this complex system of checks and balances that were designed by the founding fathers to prevent a strong government. And when you combine that with the degree of political polarization that exists in Washington, the result is that, uh, you know, Congress, for example, has not passed a budget really in, in about uh, uh, six years. And, um, no, so it's it, it's it's just led to the inability of the country to face certain, uh, you know, decisions that that um, uh, it could do under different rules in which other democracies have succeeded in in facing, but but we're somehow not able to do that. One of the things you talk about is that that system of checks and balances works as long as there is a commonality of interest. And that's what we seem to have lost between the two political parties, the two sides in this debate. Well, this is something that's been going on for the last 30 years, that uh, for much of the 20th century, the two political parties very substantially overlapped. And so whether you are a liberal like Franklin Roosevelt or a conservative like Reagan, you could actually get your agenda passed because you could form a, you know, a, 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 a consensus among um, the two parties to pass legislation, but really for the last 10 years or so, the parties have gotten so polarized that the most liberal Republican is now considerably more conservative than the most um, conservative Democrat, and the result is um, you know, this extremely high degree of partisanship where people use all these institutional rules simply to block what the other side is doing, and the result is you know, the kind of gridlock you see in Washington. And yet one of the vibrancies that you talk about of political institutions and for political order to work is really the necessity of politics and an appreciation of politics as, as a way to, to redress these institutions. Well, I think one big danger you know, in many of our contemporary democracies is that because the politicians aren't delivering uh, there's a cynicism about politics and this belief that all politicians are corrupt or dirty or so forth, and therefore an unwillingness to actually get involved in politics. Whereas I think really in a democratic system, the, the system can be made to work, but only if people participate, only if people get angry and they mobilize and they actually use the system uh, you know, to achieve uh, the ends that they want. And that's, I think, what we really need. It's still possible in this country. Um, it just requires both the, you know, the leaders and the followers, uh, I think, to crystallize. Talk about some of the places where this does work. I mean, you talk a lot about going Denmark as a phrase, about the systems that do seem to get that balance right. Well, in Northern Europe, 
meaning Germany and Scandinavia, uh, Switzerland, places like that, you've got a very high-trust system. So you've got big welfare states where the government is actually quite pervasive and uh, you know, taxes a lot, but it delivers services pretty well. And, you know, in the, I mean, I've spent time in Denmark as a visiting professor. It's quite amazing. It's so different from the United States, but people will say, yeah, we pay a lot in taxes, but we get a lot back. And, you know, we're pretty happy with that. The other thing that trust allows you to do, you know, one thing that's happened in Northern Europe is that a lot of the big labor unions have been able to give back um, concessions in terms of of flexibility, so you can actually fire people in in uh, Scandinavia and in Germany, unlike in Southern Europe, and that's actually what's underlay their their competitiveness in the last few years. Whereas I think here we have this zero sum attitude between management and labor, where you know the slightest concession is regarded as a you know win for the other side, and I think it just makes it harder to achieve uh, you know common purposes of, of achieving better competitiveness combined with you know protections for workers and, and you know protections of their incomes and that sort of thing there's also that that aspect of the political DNA that just pushes for smaller and smaller government without regard to to the broader conversation about what it can or can't do it's just the idea that smaller government must somehow be better well, I think in general, the quality of government is much more important than the absolute size of it. We Americans just love to argue about mm-hmm. whether the government is too big or too small, but we don't pay any attention to whether it's actually doing the things that it you know, says it, 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 it's going to do. And it means that we're kind of trapped in this bad you know, circularity where a lot of Americans say, I don't like the government, I don't trust it. I don't want to pay taxes. I don't want to give the government any authority over my life. And then the government, without resources and without authority, doesn't do a good job. And then people turn around and say, see, the government can't do anything. Whereas you're in the opposite situation in certain other democracies where the government is pretty competent and people trust it and you know, they pay taxes and they give it authority and then things work. On the other side of all of this, is the Middle East today, where, you know, we talked about before, all good things don't always go together. Sometimes it seems in the Middle East, all bad things do go together. Uh, Well, that's right. I think that you have this order in the Middle East up until the Arab Spring that was basically not very legitimate. You have these very powerful uh, authoritarian police states in Tunisia and Egypt and Syria and Iraq. uh, And, um, it was really a very combustible situation, and in 2011, all of that started to come unraveled um, in uh, Tunisia, which then spread to the rest of the region. And right now, there's just this fundamental lack of consensus in these highly polarized societies over how to restore any kind of basic uh, political order. And I think, you know, unfortunately, now we're seeing a kind of spreading Sunni-Shiite sectarian war that's really raging in Syria and Iraq and throughout that region. And I think that, um, unfortunately, it may go on like the Thirty Years' War between Protestants and Catholics in in, uh, uh, in Europe, uh, where it's it's just going to take time for this um, this thing to burn itself out. Part of that is, is the alignment and what people see as the illegitimacy of some of the states themselves and the way they were thrown together in the post-colonial period. Well, the colonial powers really had a, especially the French, had a um, policy of divide and rule. And so, for example, in Syria, they put this Alawite 
minority uh, in charge of the country when they uh, when they dismantled their their colonial regime. And you know it was pretty powerful for a couple of generations, but that's really what's broken down because uh, the rest of the Sunni uh, community didn't want to be ruled by them. And so in all of these places, you know, in Iraq was really cobbled together by the British out of three. Uh, provinces of the Ottoman Empire that didn't really have much to do with each other. And I think this is one of the fundamental problems for the legitimacy of all of these countries in the region. I want to talk for a moment before we finish up about Europe, where there are indeed, as part of the EU, large bureaucratic institutions, and how that fits into this broader context we've been talking about. Well, you know, I said that a lot of individual European countries are pretty well governed, but the problem, I think, in Europe is really at the European level, at the level of the European Union, because, in a sense, they've got power in all the wrong places, uh, so they're really powerful in places that are very annoying to people. So, you know, labeling your cheese and wine and this sort of thing, there's a Eurocrat that's going to tell you exactly how you have to do it, and that gets people very annoyed. But on the other hand, where it really matters in terms of having a powerful uh, European Central Bank like the U.S. Federal Reserve or having a common fiscal policy that imposes some overall you know, discipline and, and transfers money between regions, that just doesn't exist. And that's really why the euro crisis happened. And so the, the design of the European Union itself, I think, is really defective. And they're really not out of this crisis yet. They, they have not solve the fundamental problems that led to the euro crisis back in 2010. And overall of this, though, you're optimistic in the sense that the arc still seems to keep bending towards democracy. Well, I'm optimistic in the sense that people want democracy. And you keep seeing this, you know, with new democratic, pro-democratic uh, uprisings in Ukraine and now in Hong Kong and, you know, uh, in the Arab Spring and, and all over the world. The real problem is this one we started with, which is institutions, that it's one thing to want democracy, but it's another thing to actually be able to create the institutions that can make a democracy work. And that's really the big struggle that we're contending with in places like Ukraine and in the, in the Arab world, is how do you create the institutions that will underlie a democratic political order? Uh, so, you know, that's it was a big struggle in Europe when it, Europe democratized, and it's a big struggle in these places uh, today. Francis Fukuyama, the book is Political Order and Political Decay, From the Industrial Revolution to the Globalization of Democracy. Frank, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 